Did you enjoy talking? Would you call it fun? Was that fun? Having fun? Yeah, good. Um, the teachers have asked me tonight to kind of sum up their teaching for you. <laughs> but uh, I, I seem to have lost those notes. I think it has something to do with breathing and uh, this moment, which is now that moment. Um, Anyway, I, I assume that it's, it's penetrated by now, and you know, you, you make up your own uh, summary, and I'll get on with uh, some other things here. Uh, this talk tonight, uh, I've done it before, and uh, some have called it shock and awe. Others, uh, be here, wow. Uh, and it is about awe and mystery. And I know that some of you, after doing the practice for nine days now, have walked outside and felt that sense of the beauty and the mystery and the kind of stunning, unspeakable wonder of this place we live and this human condition that we feel ourse find ourselves in. So often we shut that down with taking everything for granted and seeing through the eyes of familiarity. And uh, everything seems very ordinary. But just a little turning of the mind, just a little turning of the heart towards the mystery can really bring things alive in a different way. Hafiz says, O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? So great question. Often it's because we are lost in that small self, you know, always projecting our likes and dislikes on the universe, seeing everything through the habitual mind. Over the years, meditation has really allowed me to get in touch with the mystery. I haven't found any great answers to what this is all about, but just in exploring, I feel like I've become more intimate with the wonder of it all, and uh, it brings delight. Dharma practice has, has taught me more and more to be in beginner's mind, as, as Philip talked about last night. And when you can be present in the moment, there is a, a great story, a great richness unfolding. One of the main ways that Dharma practice has, has given me a sense of wonder and awe is by bringing me back again and again to the most basic aspects of my existence. Coming back to my breath, a sign of life. And suddenly I am one of the live ones. And, you know, we all know that we're alive, but how often do we let that fact reverberate in us? And considering, you know, how long we were dead before we became alive, and probably how long we're going to be dead after we die, these are all very precious moments. Very precious moments, and every breath is a precious breath. I remember I interviewed Swami Muktananda once on the radio, and I asked him if he did miracles like a lot of the Hindu Swamis do, and he said, no. He said, I just tell people to be aware of the blood being pumped through their whole body by their heart. He said, how could I do a miracle that matches that? 
Einstein said, one cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity of life or the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. Now, as you go back into the world, you're going to take the power of this practice and uh, some of your settled mind with you and your open heart with you. And uh, hopefully you will stay in touch with some of that mystery. I think that also you can stay in touch with it by doing a little reflection every day, arousing your holy curiosity. And to give you kind of a guide to uh, that kind of reflection, I will lead you tonight in a, in a in a, in a little guided meditation reflection, which I used to call Be Here Wow. Um, it's, a, it's an exercise to make your jaw drop open. Awe. It's an awe exercise. <laughs> so just, you know, I mean, first of all, just look around as if you had never seen this before. What a strange gathering of <laughs> beings all sitting around. They've just spent a week looking at their equipment and trying to figure out what's wrong with them, why they can't be happy. But it's such a mystery what we're doing here, what, what, how, how we got here. And it's such a long, long story. You know, for so many years, for so many millennia, us humans have been telling our, ourselves a story. I mean, because ever since we pinched ourselves and realized that we do exist, we've been trying to figure out why and how we got here. And, you know, we've been telling ourselves these, these stories, you know, about how, you know, it's all about us. You know, we thought we were so special because, you know, we can think and, you know, we can do lots of, we can, we can not only run a maze, we can build a maze, you know. Uh, we thought we were so special that we, we made these special stories about it. But now we're starting to tell ourselves a whole new story. And so as I lead this guided meditation, I will dip into that story, which is really a modern scientific story which is a, a great wisdom tradition that we all hold and, and really kind of believe in. And I think we should not leave science to the scientists, but we should find the spiritual message. What is it telling us about who we are and how we should be and who we're related to, etc.? So I go back to the mid-90s at some moment when I read in about page six or seven of the San Francisco Chronicle, the Hubble telescope had just sent back a picture of a nickel-sized piece of the universe, just a, you know, one little snapshot, and had found 20 million new galaxies. <laughs> not planets, not suns, not solar systems, galaxies, each of them filled with millions of suns, many of them millions of times bigger than our sun. Just a nickel-sized piece of the sky, 20 million galaxies. Equally astounding was the fact that humans around the planet weren't falling to their knees in wonder and saying, my God, we got it wrong. And, you know, it's so much bigger than we thought. And we really, maybe we're we're kind of insignificant. Or, on the flip side of that, you could say, look at what we're a part of. It's so much bigger than we thought. And the astrophysicists say that all those millions of galaxies out there all came from the explosion of a tiny dot smaller than an atom, a singularity. All of it, 
1.7 billion years ago today. <laughs> Why not? 13.7 billion years ago today, that dot exploded, and out of that explosion came the elementary forces and particles, and they began morphing and mixing and expanding and creating new particles and elements and, and eventually creating all those galaxies and this planet and all the forests and oceans and mountains and uh, animals and people and socks and pizza <laughs> and everything that you can know of a name, you and me included, came out of the explosion of a tiny dot much smaller than an atom. Sure. It's science, right? You know, either that's how it happened or there's a God that created everything in six days. Take your pick. Which, which is... <laughs> but think of it. It's taken 13.7 billion years to make you. That's a reason to pump up your chest a bit. The universe has been working on you for 13.7 billion years. It's a noble experiment, you know? Don't blow it. <laughs> now, the astrophysicists say there may be other universes, let alone other galaxies, you know? Uh, there may be many of them. In Buddhist literature, there's been uh, talk of that for a long time. This is from the Avatamsaka Sutra, uh, an old Mahayana Sutra where the Buddha tries to explain how many worlds are known to him. And it starts out like this. He begins calculating 10 to the 10th power times 10 to the 10th power equals 10 to the 20th power. And this calculating in the sutra, as you read it, goes on for several pages. Near the final summation, it reaches a number 35 digits long. And then it goes on to say that that number squared is an incalculable and an incalculable to the fourth power is a boundless. And a boundless to the fourth power is an incomparable. And an incomparable to the fourth power is an innumerable. And innumerable to the fourth power is an unaccountable. And unaccountable to the fourth power is an unthinkable. And unthinkable to the fourth power is an immeasurable. And immeasurable to the fourth power is an unspeakable. And unspeakable to the fourth power is an untold, which is unspeakably unspeakable. And an untold multiplied by itself is a square untold. That's how many worlds are known <laughs> to a Buddha. Astrophysicists move over, you know, I mean, they've got some discovering to do. It's, it's really so much stranger, as one physicist put it, than we imagine. It's so much stranger than we can imagine. I'd like you just for a minute to close your eyes. You don't have to get in the position. Just close your eyes. <laughs> and feel yourself on the earth. Feel yourself actually being held to the earth by this mysterious force of gravity, which nobody really understands at all. And you're on this little rock, and you are going through space at unimaginable speeds. At, at this moment, you were spinning eastward on the Earth's axis at about 1,000 miles an hour. We're spinning around the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour. The solar system is orbiting through the Milky Way galaxy at the rate of about a half a million miles an hour. See, you don't even have to hold on. And it's, that's because <laughs> gravity's holding on to you. Uh, and the Milky Way galaxy, which is part of the Virgo cluster, is speeding at nearly a million miles an hour towards some point in interstellar space known as the Great Attractor. 
And everything being attracted to the great attractor is traveling at the speed of 600,000 miles an hour toward another supercluster of galaxies called the Shapley attractor. <laughs> so, you can open your eyes. So, you're, you're trying to slow down? Yeah. Good luck. But when you think about it, I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't it strange? We're just roaring through this vast, vast emptiness of space on this little rock, our home. This universe that we live in is a real trickster also. I mean, you've, you've seen how much uh, of a trickster your own mind can be, but the universe itself is continually tricking us. First of all, into believing that it's all very real. Um, for instance, it looks like there's a lot of stuff here, right? You know, buildings, trees, and planets. But there's hardly any stuff here at all. Because everything we perceive is made out of atoms, and atoms are 99.999% empty space. You take the nucleus of an atom and blow it up millions of times until it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a dust moat, and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? <laughs> Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. <laughs> I read recently that it, if all the matter of all the people on this planet was condensed, it would be the size of a sugar cube. We would all fit into the size of a sugar cube. Not much here. <laughs> As it says in the Heart Sutra, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. They're trying to come up with a theory of everything, you know. Now, uh, the latest uh, theory, uh, one theory that will kind of unite all the crazy uh, understanding that we have, new understanding we have of, of physical reality and how things work. The latest theory is the superstring theory, which says that everything in the universe is made out of these minuscule, quivering little strings of, ma of, of energy. It's just all just energy, and it's all, and that everything is made out of that same superstring stuff. Now you might wonder why does it look like there's so many different things if actually that's all there is? It's a puzzle, isn't it? One of my physicist friends said, the size of the superstring is to the size of a human being as a human being is to the size of the universe. Now, don't tell me how the scientists figured out <laughs> how tiny that was, but of course nobody's ever seen a superstring. The superstring theory also says that there are uh, seven more dimensions to reality that didn't unfold in our particular universe, which is probably a good thing, because we can barely handle four, you know, <laughs> width, height, depth, and time. If there were seven more dimensions to reality, think of how much harder it'd be to find your car keys, <laughs> keep your weight down. I mean, but that, that theory, it makes you think, realize that we're living in a pretty arbitrary reality. You know, there are four dimensions in this reality that we perceive and move through. It could just have easily, a couple more dimensions might have popped up. I think maybe one, there is a dimension where birds go to die. You know, they just have a, a little secret thing. They fly into that crevice, because you never see them, right? 
lost, there's one dimension that's full of lost socks, you know. <laughs> it's too strange. The physicists will now tell you that consciousness plays a part in creating the reality that we perceive. The mystics have been saying this forever, but now uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics says, one of the most widely accepted interpretations says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. As one physicist put it, when we're looking there are particles, when we're not looking there are only waves, probability waves. So please, do a little experiment with me. Everybody look over to this side of the room, please. <laughs> now, theoretically, the other side of the room has disappeared. Now let's look. <laughs> did you reassemble yourself? How did, how did that happen? Or somebody was peeking. That could be, right? There is a story that somewhere in the Himalayas, there's, there's a cave with lamas who are holding the world together by paying attention. They know that we all have to live through this karma, and so you know they're doing it just in case there's a moment where nobody's looking. But what the scientists have come to, to realize is there's really nothing here at all. It's all energy, E equals mc squared. Everything is process. There, there is no thingness. One physicist put it, matter is just gravitationally trapped light. It's like a light, it's all a light show. Sokni Rinpoche, one of my teachers, said, you Westerners, you have, you have a real problem. It's a real problem. You think everything is so real, when it's really just effervescence. I think it's an ultimate irony in a civilization so thoroughly devoted to materialism that our scientists would discover that matter may not even exist. <laughs> so we're like an illusion, chasing an illusion. Jack Kerouac wrote, happiness consists in seeing everything as a great strange dream. A lot of uh, what's coming out of the scientific laboratories and understandings confirms and amplifies the Buddha's teaching. In particular, impermanence. Boy. In the Abhidhamma, it says uh, the Buddha experienced things changing millions of times in the blink of an eye. Did he slow his mind down that slow so that he could count them? But in the subatomic world, we find evidence of an impermanence that is so impermanent it makes ordinary reality seem frozen in time. Way down inside of everything, where the quarks are doing a line dance inside an electron, events are occurring in increments far shorter than a blink of an eye, which is considered to be one tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists call attoseconds, which is a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about an attosecond to travel around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. Down deeper, Time is measured in zeptoseconds, which is a billionth of a trillionth of a second. Zepto. And I think at some point, the physicists realized they had entered a Marx Brothers routine, <laughs> where the jokes are coming so fast, you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started to measure things changing even faster in trillionths of a trillionth, of a second, they named it a yoctosecond. <laughs> so you've got atto, zepto, and yocto. Uh, it's a, hello, I must be going, right? It's a...
Let's assume for a, a little while that the world is real. And as we do, we can begin to realize that the fact of our existence is a cause in itself for wonder. The odds against you being in this body with this mind, contemplating the odds against you being in this body, in this mind, are astronomical, literally. For instance, a very delicate balance of forces had to be in place for it to hang together like this. The size of the neutron or proton were just a fraction larger or smaller, or the electromagnetic force uh, uh, pulling the atoms apart was a, just a, a millionth of a degree stronger or weaker, or the nuclear force holding them together. Everything would have, everything would have collapsed or blown apart, and then no elements would have been created, and then you know no hydrogen no oxygen, then where would you be, Mr. and Mrs. Hydrogen-based life form and uh, oxygen-breathing life form? It all had to be so precisely balanced for it to come out like this. Your body, your body's made of he heavy elements formed in the early explosions of supernova. You are stardust. You are golden. I know you all finished that line in your head, so I won't, <laughs> I won't go on. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a rock, once I was a cloud. I think Jack said that the other day. This is not poetry. This is science. This is not a belief in reincarnation. This is the history of evolution. And as far as we know, life is very rare. I mean, that this is a very unusual experience we're having, at least in our corner of the Milky Way. Uh, eight other planets spun out of the same cloud of gases as, as the Earth, and there's no evidence of anything like this going on there. We've now found, I don't know, every week we find more evidence of more planets spinning around other suns, other solar systems out there. And, uh, but the scientists have figured that all of these planets are in what they call dead zones. They're either too close to their sun or too close to the middle of the galaxy and getting bombarded by gamma rays. And they don't think it's possible for life to exist on any of the other planets that have been discovered. So far, this is the only evidence we have of this. And of course, we are exactly in the right place in our galaxy or in our solar system for life to appear like this. I mean, because it did appear like this. Uh, if we'd have been just a little bit further, our orbit a little bit further from the sun, you know, like a couple thousand miles, not far at all, uh, it would be freezing. We would all be huddled around the, the equator, you know, and uh, maybe we'd be woolly mammoths, you know, with some kind of consciousness. Uh, if we were all a little, if, if the orbit had been a little closer to the sun, you know, we'd be maybe living underground or something. That all these, uh, all these elements, all these circumstances determine what we are and how we're shaped and how we move and how we eat and how we perceive. And it, to many people, many scientists, as well as lay sort of spiritual types like myself, are, are completely baffled at why it happens here and, and how uh, strange it is that, that this planet has been such a great place for life to exist for as long as it has. James Lovelock, who, who came up with the Gaia hypothesis, says, the climate and chemical properties of the Earth now and throughout its history seem always to have been optimal for life. For this to have happened by chance is an, as unlikely as to survive unscathed, driving blindfold through rush hour traffic. It's almost as if there's something, there's something mysterious going on here. E.O. Wilson has a wonderful exercise that he asks us to, to do. He said, take a walk from the center of the planet to the surface. 
and you walk for a month or so through molten rock and then you walk for another month through hardened mountains of rock and finally about 15-20 minutes before the end of your walk you see these little pieces of matter that move themselves around little bacteria and microbes in the water underwater uh, aquifers and and then you see some little beetles and worms and then all of a sudden you burst through the surface and everywhere you look are millions of species in every nook and cranny there is life with all different kinds of camouflage and means of locomotion and I mean everywhere and then another 10 minutes and you're starting to get into the atmosphere and there's hardly anything that it's just in this little strip of the surface of this earth where we find this phenomena the Buddha talked about the wonder of being born a human this precious human life he said it's so rare he said if you had a turtle swimming through the seven oceans you tossed a little life preserver a little yoke out there the chances that that turtle would come up with that yoke around its neck are the same chances you have of being born a human being very very precious incarnation Richard Dawkins one of the real you know serious scientists no messing around no no fuzzy edges on him he says my overwhelming reaction to the story of evolution is one of amazement the universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple just physics and chemistry just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space the fact that it did not the fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to convey it properly and even that is not the end of the matter not only is life on this planet amazing and deeply satisfying to all whose senses have not become dulled by familiarity the very fact that we have evolved the brain power to understand our evolutionary genesis redoubles the amazement and compounds the satisfaction we can touch that wonder in meditation when we turn towards this consciousness this mysterious power of knowing and realize that we can know ourselves and kind of understand the origin of, of who we are and how we got to be this way and determine that we truly are not our fault and of course we're shaped by nature it's sort of like nature is the artist we are the art nature determines how beings evolve for a couple billion years of life on this planet there were no legs because there was no land nature goes through all these upheavals and creates new niches and wipes out old species and new ones pop up new ways of being the Buddha I don't know I'm just amazed sometimes at when I, I read things that he said he, he once said uh, this body is not mine or anyone else's it has arisen due to causes and conditions for now it should be felt it has arisen due to causes and conditions it's not mine it's it's evolution's body it's a loner <laughs> when we reflect on the, this story this new story we're telling ourselves about who we are we really find a lot of Dharma teaching we certainly see a Nietzsche we certainly see impermanence 99% of all the species that have ever existed are gone we see selflessness as well in the fact that you know we are we come around we come 
up out of the stream of life as a result of a combination of all sorts of elements and cosmic evolution and biological evolution and and then who knows what the stream has has in mind for us. And of course, dukkha. I need not say more. But for now, what an amazing combination of elements we are. Let's go inside our bodies for a minute and then explore this work of art that uh, nature has created. Well, you know, we could go into the breath, but you've been doing you've been there. But if you just, you know, you just feel your breath and realize that in some very real way, with every breath, you are uh, becoming a cell in this great breathing of this planet that really acts it really does breathe. And the dark side of the planet, uh, you know, there's a lowering of oxygen. Uh, and uh, the light side, uh, an increase of oxygen. And every breath you're feeding the, the plant kingdom, they're feeding you. It's like this umbilical, uh, you know, this invisible umbilical that we all have to each other and to the planet. You get approximately and an average life, 15 million breaths. Do you know which million you're working on? <laughs> Your heartbeat. There it is. You can feel it. Beats an average of 5 billion times in a life. If you ever look through a microscope and see those little microbial beings and amoebas, you know, they're all kind of pulsing. You think you're related, maybe? Everything pulsing. Everything on this planet pulsing. Every living thing. And every few minutes, your heart pumps blood through your entire circulatory system, which, by the way, if laid out end-to-end, -end, would go around the earth twice. All your capillaries and veins and arteries. And, and your, your heart pumps blood through that every few minutes. Now close your eyes for a minute and bring your uh, upper and lower teeth together and just feel the hardness of, of the bone there just for a few moments. You can sense the great bone of skull up there. Bones are made of calcium and phosphate and the heavy metals there all coming from the earth. It's sort of like your skeleton is, is the earth molded into your shape. I mean, where else could your body have come from? It's the clay of earth, literally. So you feel your head up there and then that big opening at the back and bottom of the head and the, the spine like a cable system going down, limbs branching off. This design started about 500 million years ago with some marine creatures who were the first to invent or develop this skeleton and started our whole phyla of vertebrates. So uh, say it with me. Say it loud. I'm a vertebrate and I'm proud. Come on, that's it. <laughs> we're all, we're all part of that phyla. We're, we're so not phyla identified, you know? It's just... <laughs> but then, you know, we, we're so identified with our heads because we think that's, you know, where, where we live. And heads are us. Um, but I loved, I, I read a, a piece about the first heads, which they, you know, the evolutionary scientists have been working on figuring out how they came about and what, was, what it was all about. Uh, the first heads appeared on these, also these marine creatures, uh, possibly some kind of stingray or something, 
uh, they were extra clumps of cells that were built around the mouth so that uh, the creature could manipulate the food better, you know, both catching it and, and uh, manipulating it and swallowing it. And then, of course, the senses grew up also around the mouth because, you know, you want to see where the food is and you want to hear and where, you know, and uh, smell. And uh, basically the head is there to eat, you know, the better to eat with, my dear, the whole... That's what the whole thing is about on some level, right? <laughs> we get... <laughs> Strange, isn't it? And we make such a big deal about it. I mean, I, I feel your stomach for a moment. Just put your hand down there, and now, I mean, it. You can't really feel, but there's it's a lot of uh, liquid there, the, the plumbing. And of course, right now, there's, you know, foods being digested and sugars are being extracted and, and uh, waste is being filtered and proteins are being filtered out and the blood's, I mean, it's just hundreds of processes going on. And uh, the stomach has to produce a new lining every three days to protect itself from its own digestive juices. They're so strong and they're so potent. And in order to do that, produce a new stomach lining every three days, the stomach is creating a half a million new cells every minute. New beings are being born inside of you every minute, a half a million of them. And of course, inside of your stomach, right now, there are more living, individual living beings than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. Bacteria, uh, they live on you, you live with them, you couldn't live without them, they couldn't live, oh, well, they did for, probably find something else to do, but <laughs> they're, they're teeming in there. They have churches and roads, I bet, you know, whole, <laughs> whole civilization in between, in your stomach there. There's some speculation that the bacteria invented us as a, a, a moving feedlot, you know, sort of get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood. But as, as Lynn Margulis, the great molecular biologist, says, the concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. We are all communities unto ourselves. Open your hand. You look at your hand. Amazing instrument. You realize that once it was webbed, the fingers were webbed. Once it was actually the stub of a fin that was growing out. And not just in your past life as another species, but in the womb as you develop. We grow, we cycle through the DNA of fish and amphibian. And, you know, then uh, we come to the human. I told you the other day about the three brains, you know, that we have. Lizard brain and the mammalian brain, the neo-mammalian brain. The lizard brain, you know, handles a lot of this stuff, the breathing and the body temperature and the sex drive and hunger and blood temperature, just tons of stuff. And it does it, you know, without you having to be conscious of it as all, at all, which is really quite miraculous and a good thing, I think. If you had to be conscious of, of taking care of all that stuff, you would have no time to think at all. <laughs> okay. How are we doing on time here? Okay. Let's come to a really big cause for wonder, your senses. Come to your senses. For a minute, close your eyes and just listen to the sounds around you. Uh, you hear the sound of my voice. You hear rustling. Realize that there is no sound in the outside world. 
All of this sound is being created right now inside your head. All of what we call sound. You can open your eyes. I'm just up here flapping my lips and my tongue and creating disturbances in the air that then hit the drum of your ear that then vibrates uh, three little bones, which then uh, stirs up a little pool of liquid, which then uh, excites some little hairs that then hit auditory nerves that go to the auditory center of the brain and what we call sound is created. But it's silent out in the world. The evolution has created this amazing Rube Goldberg kind of sound system in order for you to perceive at a distance, to perceive events at a distance. It's all about that, you know, of course. But now we can, you know, pluck music out of the air and meaning and, you know, it all, uh, it all happens almost without us, without any effort at all on our part. Next time you hear a symphony or a beautiful song, realize that you are part of the creation of that inside of your head. Now, just look around. What you are seeing is a three-dimensional, ever-changing work of art painted by the greatest artists that ever lived. Your eyes and brain because you're not seeing the original. You're seeing a repainting by your brain. What's happening right now is streams of photons are hitting the millions of cells on the retina of your eye and being transferred into electrical signals. So it's just electrical signals going into the visual cortex of the brain, which then goes into a little conference call, you know, hey, have we seen this before? What do we need, what is this, you know, what do we need to do? And then, different parts of the brain talking to each other, then it repaints the picture for you and sends out a, a, a snapshot, a flash, a conscious flash of what, is it, what you're seeing. And it does it moment after moment after moment after moment. You just look down at your lap and look up here. Refocusing, not a problem. It's a camera for dummies, you know? It's just a brilliant, a brilliant piece of work. The scientists are in awe. Charles Darwin wrote in his notebook, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection, by little increments over you know, long periods of time, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. The eye is just a small piece of flesh built out of sugars and fats and water and a little protein, yet it has millions of precisely calibrated moving parts. Phenomenal. You are phenomenal. Alfred North Whitehead, great philosopher, said, the various qualities of the world are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets credit, which should in truth be reserved for ourselves. The rose gets credit for its scent, the nightingale for its song, the sun for its radiance, but the poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. All your dreams of being an artist are fulfilled. You don't need to go to practice the piano or painting. And it's all going on. Walt Whitman says, Oh, to have my life henceforth my poem of joys. Okay, the brain. We'll go through quickly through the brain. The brain processes approximately 11 million bits of information a second, sifts this information across a network of trillions of possible connections, and then constructs for you a moment-to-moment -moment picture of reality, all for the sake of your survival and enjoyment. And the scientists are discovering what many of you might have stumbled across during your meditation practice. There's nobody directing. There's nobody running the whole show. Turns out the brain is like this self-organizing system. 
and uh, needs no director. It goes on perfectly fine without you being there to look after it. A few years ago, Time Magazine had a, an issue with a cover story entitled, In Search of the Mind. <laughs> you know, a lot of people probably weren't aware that the mind was missing, but they were probably even more astounded to find out that the scientists couldn't find it. <laughs> and uh, the article concluded, and I just was so amazed that this would be in Time Magazine, I, I wrote it down. This was the last paragraph of the article, which summarized the latest neuroscience research. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity deep inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for such a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. No self. Time Magazine. Why wasn't there a nationwide panic of some kind? We inhabit this wondrous body, we have these wondrous brains and senses. We live in this complete mystery. And we take it all for granted most of the time. It's so ordinary. And yet, if we can just be present in the moment for, for what is happening around us, we can just be filled with delight and awe. And look at consciousness, this thing that knows. You know, you might have gotten a glimpse of it. It's, you know, it's hard to catch it. What is that? The physicists, uh, or no, the neuroscientists call it the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem. They have no idea. And, uh, of course, the mystics pray to it deify it, write poems to consciousness, the most wondrous, luminous, uh, magical faculty on the planet. It's just, it's, and it's there, it's with you. Chabkarlama, the body and all the realms of our world are only mind. The mind is the artist creating it all. Okay, we're down to the, getting close to the end here. So the, li the question, we'll, we'll, we'll come to the question, what is life? I, I hope you don't expect me to answer it, but... Uh, <laughs> we haven't a clue, but we have found now what seems to be the seed of all of life which is this little DNA molecule composed of four chemical compounds. And depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA contributes to the growth of a sequoia or a rose or a human being or an ant. It is the seed of everything that lives. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, much too cold and clinical a term for such a magic substance. I have a new acronym for you. The next time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Because it grows all these millions of life forms. As you may know, your DNA, the instructions and a manual for building and maintaining you is almost exactly the same as the one for the person sitting next to you. 99.99999% you share your DNA with Julia Roberts or 
Dalai Lama or George Bush. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> yep. <laughs> you may know that you share, we, we share nearly 98.5% of our DNA with great apes, the chimpanzees. We share nearly 90% of our DNA with mice. Mice. <laughs> That's because most of the information for building and maintaining you is information for building and maintaining a basic mammal. That takes a lot of information. That's a complicated thing. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms and nearly 50% with yeast. <laughs> Now, the question is, if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do we draw the line? Who gets a soul? Mushroom? See, I, I think the discovery of DNA not only uh, relates us to everything that ever lived, but it really, uh, it doesn't, and it doesn't deny our divinity. It just denies our exclusive divinity. But we're really all so connected, so intimately interconnected with everything that lives. Okay, be here while. This, this fact is always the one that <laughs> knocks me out the most. Uh, life has gone over the course of the last three billion years or so, three and a half billion years, from a single-celled being to a being with many trillions of cells. That's you and me. Trillions of individual living beings come together all for the sake of this one organism, all cooperating to some degree uh, for each of us. Now, inside, your cell is just a minuscule, I mean, it's a millionth of, of the size of a pinhead. And inside every one of your cells is a little drop of seawater. And floating inside that little drop of seawater is two yards, two yards of DNA. It's, it's the thin, thinnest molecule, it, uh, the thinnest you can possibly imagine, uh, and wrapped millions of times around itself. Two yards of DNA inside every one of your many trillion cells. So that if, and, and inside each of those cells is all the instructions for building and maintaining you, just a library full of, of information. If all your DNA was stretched out end to end, it would go around the planet millions of times, your individual DNA. There's a, a, you, you contain 126 billion miles of DNA inside of you, information for building and maintaining you. <laughs> Lily Tomlin says they have DNA in, on other planets too, she said, but they spell it differently. Be here a while. E.O. Wilson says, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and producing a 747. <laughs> Brian Swim says, four billion years ago, the earth was a cooling ball of lava. Now it can sing opera. So this is a reflection to gladden the heart, bring you closer to the mystery. But you can, you can have this experience of, of awe anytime you sit down with new eyes, with a, new, with a beginner's mind, and realize that the mystery is being carried in on every breath. We don't know what this is. 
this life, this breath that keeps us going, this strange occurrence on this planet. As you watch yourself, or watch the brain go through its machinations and its weird trips, and realize that this consciousness is watching it all, and you can experience this as if it's for the first time, and you can experience with it with great love and wonder and awe. Rumi says, awe is the balm that will heal our eyes. So, I offer this, uh, and, and another thing, you know, I mean, as you sit, you can even bring the questions in with you as a koan, you know, what is life, what is consciousness? What is this mysterious experience? I'm going to close with uh, a poem by Walt Whitman, a piece of Leaves of Grass, which is, uh, I think, a, an example of, of the kind of consciousness that's available that we possibly can touch and live, live with more and more. You... Earth and life, till the last ray gleams, I sing. Open mouth of my soul, uttering gladness, eyes of my soul, seeing perfection, natural life of me, faithfully praising things, the triumph of things. Illustrious everyone, illustrious what we name space, sphere of unnumbered spirits, Illustrious the mystery of motion in all beings, even the tiniest insect. Illustrious the attribute of speech, the senses, the body. Illustrious the passing light. Illustrious the pale reflection on the moon in the western sky. Illustrious whatever I see or hear or touch to the last. Good in all. In the satisfaction and aplomb of animals. In the annual return of the seasons. In the hilarity of youth in the strength and flush of manhood, in the grandeur and exquisiteness of old age, in the superb vistas of death. Yes, wonderful to depart, wonderful to be here. The heart, to jet the all alike and innocent blood, to breathe the air, how delicious. To speak, to walk, to seize something by the hand, to prepare for sleep, for bed, to look on my rose-colored flesh, to be conscious of my body, so amorous, so large, to be this incredible God I am, to have gone forth among other gods, those men and women I love. Wonderful how I celebrate you and myself, how my thoughts play subtly at the spectacles around, how the clouds pass silently overhead, how the earth darts on and on, how the sun, moon, stars dart on and on, how the water sports and sings, how the trees rise and stand up. Oh, amazement of things, even the least particle. Oh, spirituality of things. Oh, strained, musical, flowing through ages and continents, now reaching me in America. I take your strong chords. I intersperse them and cheerfully pass them forward. We'll sit for a moment.
thank you for your attention and also thank you for all your efforts this week. It was beautiful to be on this side and watch you unfold. It's a real privilege. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.